Good morning. Love that song. Keys to Zion City. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, aren't we? We don't fully grasp all of what that means, but if you're in Jesus Christ, you have tasted it. For some of you who haven't been here for a while, we've been in 1 Peter for several weeks, months. We're in chapter 2 this morning. So if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Chris Greer, and I'm, I'm one of the elders here at New Covenant, and uh, one of five or six teachers. Um, but uh, just so thankful this morning to be able to bring the Word of God to you, to me, in hopes that the Lord will renew our minds And as Peter tells us, we might grow in respect to salvation. Isn't that an amazing thing that you can actually grow? You can grow. You can get stronger. Your mind can be renewed. You can can think more clearly and deeply about who you are in Jesus Christ and about what he's done for you. You can grow. You don't have to stay the same place. You know, we think, well, I'll never be perfect. Well, that's true. Not until the day of glory, but you can grow. And that's a wonderful reality, isn't it? So as we get into his word this morning, we just need to be praying that the Lord help us to grow and feed and, and, um, and be renewed. So let's go ahead and look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and we will look here at verse 9. That's where we'll be again this morning, 9 and 10. So in contrast to those who are disobedient to the word, who stumble over Christ in verse 8, Peter now transitions to us. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know, the blessed, before I even get into the text here, you've got to feel that present tense reality, don't you? You are, you are the people of God. You are a chosen race. You now have received mercy. We're not waiting on that, brethren. That's who we are. What a wonderful thought. Let's pray and ask the Lord to really seal these identity markers in our minds. Well, Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Lord, apart from him, we can do nothing. But with him, Lord, we can do all things. With him, Lord, we are kings and priests. Doesn't get much better than that. Doesn't get more dignified than that. Lord, doesn't get more privileged than that. Lord, we we just praise you for who you've made us to be in Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we praise you for being our Savior. We thank you so much for loving us to to the extent that you would give your own lifeblood for us, taking our place on the cross, bearing our sins in your own body on the tree. Lord, we're forgiven. What an amazing reality, Lord. We we don't live as men and women in in chains anymore. Uh, We have been liberated. And Lord, help us to just live in light of that reality. Help us this morning, Lord, to remember who we are as we consider again that we're a chosen race, that royal priesthood, we're a holy nation, people for your own possession. Help us to remember again who we are and live that out for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so 1 Peter 2. So the last time we were together, we looked at the first Identity marker there in verse 9. But you are a chosen race. Well, actually, before we even did that, we looked at, we kind of looked at them as a whole. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for, for God's own possession. And what I did is I went back into the Old Testament, as Steve has already done in part, and just <clears throat> helped us to remember that, that these descriptors were to describe and be attributed to Israel. Right? This is God brought them out of Egypt, set them apart for himself, and says, 
if you will then obey me, you will be this, 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 and this, right? And so as we were looking at these things, I wanted us to realize that in the Old Testament, there was a if you obey, then you will be. In the New Covenant, it's just you are. This is who you are. And so Israel failed to live these titles out and therefore forfeited their right to them. But we as believers in Jesus, members of a new covenant, have become these things. In fact, God has made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. These terms are our identity. This is who we are. This is who God has made us to be. We are not waiting to become these things. This is who we are now. This is vital. And I, and I wanted to uh, maybe try to help us understand before I even get into the, into the terms themselves a little bit more as to why it's important to really own your identity in Jesus. Why is it important to own it? Identity is vital. So many times you know in the Bible where he describes who you are, right? Where does he do that? Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world, right? You are the salt of the earth, right? Here, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Why is it important that you really take that on in your own mind? Well, it's important because if you're going to be effective in God's kingdom, you need to understand something of the glory and the power and the assurance and the privilege that these terms afford you. Okay? Let me see if I can give you a couple examples here. Dear brother I know, some of you know him, He was in prison for a long time. The Lord saved him in prison, but he was in there for 10 years or so. When he got out of prison, and he finally got on his own, and he's working to get on his own two feet, he had a a house, and he would find himself over the months after he got out of prison, he would find himself sort of locking himself back up in the house, and even sort of locking himself back up into the bedroom of the house, closing the door. What was going on here? Well, he had been used to a certain state of affairs, right? He had been used to being a prison in a room by himself, singled off and isolated. And that's what he was used to. And he would come back and then then he would call me and he would realize that he'd been in, he's he's in a depression. He's he's sort of in his room, isolated, away from the the world, closed the windows. He kind of reclused back into that same state of affairs, sort of living out his former prison days. And he would say, Chris, I would just have to just remember that I'm a free man. I just have to remember. I got to open my door. I got to go outside. I got to remember I'm not in the jail cell anymore. But he would find himself just reclusing back into this prison state. And this is one reason why identity is so important, right? There was no secret sauce really for him getting out of that bedroom other than him remembering who he is. He's not a prisoner anymore, right? He doesn't need to recluse back into the bedroom. He's a free man. And this is is why it's so important for you to own your identity. Who are you? You're a priest of the living God. You are royalty. You are elect. This is who you are. Some of you like Downton Abbey. Um... It's okay. I like it okay. Paige recently put on the first episode again, which is like the worst episode. But anyway, there's one part of that episode that I was like, they're really on to something there. And it's the part where there's a a duke that comes and visits, and the expectation is that he's going to marry one of the daughters. And as he's sort of walking with that daughter through the, this mansion of a house at Downton. He wants to go visit the rooms that, that, that you're kind of not supposed to, called the attics. This is where the servants live. And so there, and she's like, well, we're, we're not supposed to really do that. I mean, those are the servants' quarters, and that's sort of shameful, undignified, whatever it is. But he talks her into it, and they go, and they walk through the attics, and they almost get in trouble because the servants come and wonder what they're doing and this and that. And when they get caught, what's interesting is she gets caught by one of the servants, the couple does, they get caught by one of the servants, 
And she apologized to them. And he says, well, why are you apologizing? He says, because I, you know, in contrast to you, I apologize when I've done something wrong. And what did she do wrong? Well, see, the reality is that royalty doesn't belong in the attics. Right? Royalty doesn't belong in the servant quarters. Now, you could take this illustration way in the wrong direction, okay? I am not at all saying that we as Christians, because we're royalty, don't belong with the dregs of society. That is not my point. What my point is, is that there are certain places as royalty, as Christians, you don't go, right? Because you're a royal priesthood, there are certain things you don't do. There are certain things you don't say. You don't go down the the hall of sin because you are royalty, right? You, You have a certain dignity about you. And you don't belong certain places. Places of sin, places of unbelief, places of doubt, those kinds of places. That's not where you live. That's not who you are. Fear. Those kinds of halls. You don't belong in these halls. You are royalty. And that's what I mean. There are certain places by virtue of who you are that will prohibit and preclude you from going into these other attitudes and mindsets. And that's what I mean. And again, that is why these descriptors need to be in your mind and heart. Okay? All right. Now, last week we looked at this issue of election. Hot topic, right? Hot topic. Always is. But we looked closely at it where Peter says you are a chosen race. The word is elect. And so Peter says we are an elect race. So we looked at this and we saw that we have become God's people by his own choice from his love. Right? This is the constant refrain through the Bible. Steve's going to take us through this more in, in, in days to come where we see just that God's whole motivation in election is love. His whole, his whole heart is bound up in this choosing of his own people for himself. And we looked last week at the fact that God was not obligated to save anyone. People recoil at the idea of election because they think that they deserve God's love, and they don't, do they? They don't. They deserve God's justice. We're talking about in terms of what we deserve. We deserve God's wrath, really, because of our sin, don't we? His settled righteous wrath because of our sin. And yet, because God is loving, He chooses to save us and bring us to Himself. See, the wages of sin are death, right? The wages of sin are death. And how many of you have sinned in the room? Right? Well, you deserve a paycheck. And that paycheck is death. That's what you deserve. God obligates you, is not obligated to give you life. In some ways, He was obligated to give you death, and that's why He crushed His own Son. And because He did, He can save some. And this is the root of election. Election is the only reason you are in Christ. Jesus flat out tells the disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. I mean, it can't get much more clear, right? So we are chosen. Therefore, election must produce humility in us, assurance. Humility that God in His sovereign freedom chose you. And assurance to know that if He chose us before time, He will love us forever. Nothing can change His mind on that one. All right, now, today we're going to look at that second term in that descriptor, race. But you are a chosen race. All right. Now, race is a hot topic today, isn't it? It's a really hot topic. Well, what is the word here? In the original, the word is genus. Genus. You're going to transliterate it, G-E-N-U-S. Now, it can mean place of birth, nationality, descent, family, or kind. Kind. Like a kind of fish or a kind of bird. So place of birth, nationality, descent, family, kind. This is where we get, and you probably already are thinking this, this is where we get the scientific classification system, right, in some ways of genus and then the families under the genus, right? An example of a genus might be a, a, uh, you know, the Canis family, right, or canines, right, the dog family, 
And you have all the other dogs underneath that that are grouped together, right? So that's sort of an example of a genus. It's a classification system. The biblical term is similar conceptually as it deals with a group of closely related peoples. So that's what it's talking about. You are an elect genus, race, kind of people, right? With a, with a, with a common origin. That's the idea. Now, as far as I can tell, there are three different usages in the scriptures on the idea of race. Okay? Three different usages of this idea of race. There's the human race. There are differing ethnic races. And there, are, there is the chosen race. All right? So as far as I can tell, these are the races mentioned in the Bible. So the first one, the human race. So you can turn to Acts 17. We'll look at this together. Acts 17. Paul preaching here at Athens. Many of you familiar with the message. Paul is provoked. As he looks around and he sees idols, he's like, I don't appreciate any of the artwork. I'm just mad. Right? So he stands up and he's like, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. Verse 23. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. You don't know who the unknown God is? I'm going to tell you who he is. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And here it is. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, and here's the word, for we also are his genus. Now translators translate that children. I don't love that translation. This is one of the times where I, th- I wish the NAS would probably try to pick something else. Verse 29, same word repeated again. Being then the genus, the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. And then Paul goes on and on. So the words here Paul uses is he's, he's highlighting the fact that there's one God and God has from one man, who's that? Adam, created all other human beings. Adam is the prototype and we are patterned after Adam. Right? This is all people everywhere. And God has appointed times and boundaries that people might seek the Lord. And Paul says, in Him we live and move and exist. It's, it's because of God that you exist. As even your own poets have said, for we also are His genus, His offspring, His children, being then the offspring of the children of God. Or the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver. Now, the point of this passage is not that all people are God's children in the way that the New Testament highlights the fact that we're God's children. That's a different word, okay? That's a different word. Technia, we are are the children of God because we are adopted into God's family. This is a different idea here, okay? This is a different idea. The point of this passage is not that all people are God's children, but that are all of God's kind. That's more the idea of what, what's going on here. Meaning that all people are made in God's image and His likeness. In Genesis chapter 1, you remember it well, right? Plants are made according to their kinds. Right? So you've got the citrus family, right? You've got the strawberry 
family, you've got, you've got, you know, different nuts, you've got all these different kinds of fruits and vegetables, whatever they are, but they're all according to their kind, and there are certain things that don't overlap. There are certain, there's a certain sphere that you draw around each kind, right? And in the animal world, you see this, right? There's a dog kind, there's a feline kind, there's Equine, I think, is that, or is that right? Or the horses? I mean, there's, there's all kinds of kinds. And they all have a certain blueprint that God has fashioned each one of them after. It's an amazing thing. Right? This is why evolution doesn't work, by the way. Not in the Bible. You can't make it work. Because evolution teaches that all things come from one, one single-cell organism, right? And that they all sort of morph into each other. Well, that doesn't work. Right? God begins with particular kinds and sets them in place and it's from these kinds that they are then perpetuated. There's no morphing here. Okay, a horse was, did not used to be an amoeba. Let's, let's be clear about that. God's wise, isn't he? So I'm going to say that there are, there are kinds here, so that you know that evolution is garbage. And it is garbage. Okay, so what was I talking about? Okay, birds and fish. They're, they're made according to their own kind. Land animals, made according to their kinds. But when God looks to man, when he gets to the creation of man, instead of looking to some external blueprint after which to pattern us, he looks at himself. Right? He doesn't go over here to his his drawers and look for a certain kind. He looks at himself. He looks in the mirror, as it were, and he creates us. And he says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Therefore, human beings are of a different stock than the rest of the created world, aren't we? Everybody lives that way, even though people deny that. Everyone lives that way. We have our unique origin in God. God is the the one who directly and personally creates and breathes into man the breath of life. Paul certainly isn't saying that we all are divine, or that's not Moses' point in Genesis chapter 1, but rather that we are the unique creation of God created to know Him, have fellowship with Him, resemble Him, and reflect Him in this world. That's what the image of God is. And this is why idolatry is horrific, because when you worship anything other than the God who made you, you actually betray that relationship. And this is why Paul appeals, men of Athens, You're worshiping the wrong God. You need to be worshiping the God who made you. The human race is the race of people made by God. This this race is made up of all people everywhere who have ever lived. All people really live like humans are special. I mean, we do, right? If you accidentally left your dog out all night, you realized it in the morning, you might, you know, you might be upset, but you're not going to be weeping. Maybe you will. I don't know. I wouldn't. I love my dog, but you know, he's a dog. But if you left your kid outside all night, I mean, obviously you've got bigger problems, right, that we need to talk to you about, about parenting. But just in terms of the danger of it all, that's a different, that's a different level, isn't it? Or how about you're driving down the road, and you see a possum on the side of the road, you swerve it, and you're like, gross. But what if you saw a human being lying in the ditch? See, all people know that human beings are special. And why is that? It's because we're created in God's image. We're created in His likeness. We have a dignity that surpasses any other created being. And this is what Paul points out here. So this is the first, this is the first use of the term race. We are the human race, a special, dignified kind made in God's image. The second, the second way race is used is of differing ethnic races or differing ethnicities. So I just want to say, contrary to popular social justice teaching, there is a category in the Bible of differing races of people under the umbrella of the human race. So you've got the human race, and then under the human race, you have different races of people. The scriptures say it. They use the term. We find that the concept of race in the scriptures was not developed in order to justify the white oppression of non-whites. Right? That's sort of that doesn't come out of the pages of the Bible. Now that happened in history. 
right? And that's horrific, right? That, that that actually happened and that America was complicit in that at a certain point in our history. I don't believe that that describes who we are as America anymore, but that did happen and it was horrible. But that's not the origin of the term in the Bible. The origin of the term in the Bible is just an, it's just a, a, a term that is used to distinguish certain people groups from others. So let me give you an example. Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7. The text says, Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician genus, race. And, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Right? So she comes to Jesus, desperate because this, this, this little girl has a demon in her, and Jesus graciously interacts with her. Anyway, you remember the story. Some might say it wasn't gracious, but it was gracious. Anyway, but, but says that it was of the Syrophoenician race. That's who this woman was. Meaning that she had a Phoenician heritage. This was her descent, her nationality, if you will. In this context, Mark is communicating a sense of having to do with her, with her sort of stock. Where is she from? She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. So maybe her dialect, her clothing, some physical features even may have been different. But the main point here is that she's a Gentile by virtue of her geography and her heritage. That's what the idea of race is communicating. Acts 4.36, Joseph, who was Barnabas, he was a Levite of Cyprian birth. Genus, that's the word. A, a Levite of Cyprian birth. Cyprian birth, this is, what, this is what the idea means. It means that's his origin. He's, that's his, it's his birth. He was, he was Cyprian. He was from Cyprus. So he was of the Cyprian race, one could say, of that day. Acts 13, 26. Paul says, brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God. That word family, as the translators put it, is the word genus. Brethren, sons of Abraham's race or family. Or kind. Paul uses the term genus to describe those who are ethnically and physically in the line of Abraham. They are a part of his genealogy. And that's the idea of the race here. It has the idea of genealogy, family connection, physically speaking. Okay? So race in the Bible is not so much tied to skin color as it is to genealogy Geography, family, lineage. That's, what it's, that's more or less what it's, what it's grasping. Usually the family was from the same area. Right? And that's how that kind of overlaps. So while the scriptures do use the idea of race to describe differing ethnicities, it doesn't ever give you any notion of superior versus inferior races. That's key, isn't it? It does distinguish and show difference, but... Not on, the, not on the line of superior versus inferior or, inferior or uh, expendable versus non-expendable or something like that. That is not in the text. These people are, who are different races are distinguished by geography, culture, those kinds of things. So, we are all equal before God. All races are equal before God, sharing the same value and worth before him. Whether they are American, Nigerian, Chinese, German, we are all equal before God. We're just distinguished by our particular locales and by our particular family lineages. So racism, that is intentional prejudice against others based on ethnicity, lineage, or skin color, has no warrant in the Bible and is a wicked thing in the Bible, right? Because it is partiality. And we are not to be partial toward any, regardless of skin color, right? We are not to be partial toward any, especially when it comes to the truth, right? All people everywhere need the truth. It doesn't matter who you are, right? It does not matter who you are. And all of this kowtowing to, to, to give preferential treatment to this people or that people has no warrant in the Bible, you start giving people preferential treatment for good or for bad, you're in the wrong. Just because of your skin color you begin to give preferential treatment, then that's wrong. Because of your skin color you get, you get worse, you know, horrible treatment, that's wrong. It's partiality is what it is. We are to be impartial. 
We are to be colorblind in that sense. That color does not make the deciding factor on how you approach someone with the gospel. Get that garbage out of here. It, will, it does not belong at New Covenant. It does not belong in the church of Jesus Christ. I do not speak to you as a black man or a white man or a brown man. I speak to you as a man. That is how I speak to you. And I'm so glad for the diversity of colors. And that's, that's the beauty of the Lord. But when it comes to the truth, it makes no difference in terms of what you need. So please, do not buy into this lie that in order to be effective, you have to give preferential treatment or whatever to different colors. That has no place in the Bible. It does not matter effectively. And the church has made race so essential, hasn't it, rather than incidental. It is incidental. It's a beautiful thing, but it's incidental in terms of our mission in the kingdom. And if you make it essential, then you will undermine the gospel. And you will keep your mouth shut at certain groups that are quote-unquote victimized groups. And you know what I mean. And it has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. If you assign, let's say for instance, if you assign guilt to white people simply because they are white, this is racist. Okay? The whole notion of any non-whites being inferior just because of their skin color is racist. Both are wicked. There is nothing inherently wrong with being white. There's nothing inherently wrong with being non-white or any other color. Some have tried to show this in our, in our country's history. Yes, that's true. But just because that's true doesn't mean that we change the fact that now we are to be impartial people. You know, America's tragedies, while they are horrific, they also made strides to correct those things, which is also amazing. It's hard to find many cultures in the history of the world that make um, sweeping apologies for certain things. While I know it didn't fix everything, it's still something that's noteworthy. We do, all of us in this room, live in the most privileged place on the planet right now. I don't care who you are if you live in America. So we need to be thankful to the Lord for that. Not minimizing anything about the past. But the reality is that if we buy into the fact now that just because we're white, we're, we're guilty, or if we're non-white, we're inferior, any of that, that is just has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Do not judge people based on the color of their skin or physical features. We are all made in God's image. All have our origins in Him. Yes, there might be different races, different ethnicities, different distinctions. But all people are equally valuable in God's world. Now, this last one, this is the one we want to think about, right? So you've got human race, you've got different races, and then you've got the chosen race, right? That's us, the chosen race. There is a third race. There is a third type of person in the world. There's a third type in the world. There is one more kind of race out there. And it's the chosen race. Christians. That's the third race. This is Peter's usage of the term. All Christians are unique in the world. All Christians are unique in the world. In what way? We are the elect of God. Our stock is divine in a way that the average image bearer is not. In other words, in other words, our place of origin, if you are in Jesus Christ, is heaven, in the sense that God Himself has given you a new birth. Isn't that what Jesus says? Unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. It's a new birth, it's a new origin. Right? 
And this new origin has brought about a new genus, a new race, a new humanity of people. That's who we are. Our nationality now is the kingdom of God. We've been born from above. God is our Father. We're a new race. Therefore, we're not firstly an American, not firstly a Southerner. You're firstly God's chosen race. In this race, we are set apart not by ethnicity, not by geography, not by skin color, not by culture, but by God's electing love and power. We are a different kind of people because God has brought us about in a new birth. We've been born from above. As Paul says, the Jerusalem from above is our mother. God is our father. Jesus is our brother. Right? We are an elect race. That is who we are. That is who we are. Are you believing like that? Are you acting like that? What are we as a chosen race to be distinguished by? Again, certainly not some of these outer things, but we are to be identified by our love for the Lord Jesus, our humility from being elect among all the peoples of the world because of God's sheer mercy, our love for sinners that must compel us to tell them the good news, and our love for one another, right? And this love, this love, chosen race, is to be one of the most powerful apologetics to the world, to the reality of the saving power of Jesus, right? He says, you love one another, and if you do that, then all the world will know you're my disciples. My disciples. I have disciples in the world. The world needs to know Jesus Christ has disciples, and how are they going to know? By our love for one another. This is, the, this is the stock of the chosen race of God. This is, this, is, this is the stuff we're made of. Humility, love for Christ, love for sinners, love for the brethren. This is what we're made of. Chosen race. And this is who you are. Again, you've got to put this on every day. Put this mentality on every day. This is so vital. So vital. Now, back in Peter, chapter 2, not only does he say you're a chosen race, but a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Now, I debated how much to go into this because... Steve went into it a lot. I went into it a lot. But So you've got two, two uh, themes, I guess you could say, in this word. Royal and priesthood, right? We've dealt with priesthood a lot. So maybe I'll focus... We'll, we'll look at both of them, but maybe with a little bit more heavy on the royal part, okay? So royal priesthood. This is the other descriptor Peter gives you. Now, as you think about what does this mean, royal priesthood... Do you think of any Old Testament precedent where these two ideas are brought together? Royal priesthood. Okay. First place I thought was Genesis 14. Maybe you did, maybe you did too. I don't know. You should have. Genesis 14. <clears throat> Who are we talking about here? Talking about Melchizedek, right? Abram hears that his nephew's in trouble. He goes, gets him, fights a war, successful, on his way back. And as he's on his way back, he runs into this figure. Out of the blue, out of nowhere, this guy named Melchizedek. Chapter 14 of Genesis, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, or Abram, of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him, that is Abraham gave him, a tenth of all. Right? Strange situation. Melchizedek, we don't hear anything about his genealogy, and in a book of genealogies, you'd think that'd be pretty important, especially when Abram's given him his money. Right? Abram gave him a tenth of his money, of the resources that he acquired. He gave it to this random guy named Melchizedek. 
And so it appears this guy doesn't have a genealogy in a book of genealogies. Now, we know he probably did, but it, but it was left out, and the writer of Hebrews actually picks up on that and said, this guy didn't have a genealogy. And in a book of genealogies, that's weird. And because the writer of Hebrews understands how to interpret his Old Testament, he says, huh, that's another one of those pictures, isn't it, of Jesus? That's one of those types and shadows. There's no genealogy like this guy existed forever. Well, there is a priest that exists forever. Right? This is how the writers in the New Testament think when they're reading Genesis 14. So Melchizedek is a very interesting character. His, he is a king of Salem. His name means king of righteousness. And he's a king of Salem. Salem, just the derivative of where we get the word shalom. It's Jerusalem. It's, he's the king of what that ancient, at the, at the time in the ancient world, was Jerusalem, which means peace. So he's king of righteousness and king of peace. He brings out bread and wine for Abram. And he was priest of God most high. So he was a priest. So here you have a king who is also a priest, who is greater than Abram, who blesses Abram and receives a tithe from Abram. Very interesting scenario. All right? Very interesting scenario. Now, Psalm 110. Let's turn there. Psalm 110. Again, thinking about this royal priesthood idea. Psalm 110, I believe, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, so it would probably do us well to, really, to know it really well and understand what it's all about. And there has, uh, there's lots of things you can draw from this passage. And the New Testament writers reflect on it a lot, I say, and, and, and they quote it a lot. But in Psalm 110, at the beginning there, you can see in the superscription a psalm of David. Now that's extremely important. A lot of commentators still want to debate this. I don't know why. Not only is the superscription, has it always been there, but Jesus himself, twice in Matthew, say, David said this. David wrote this. This is David's words, okay? So you don't even need to go down the road of debate in these commentators. Just trust the superscription. Trust what Jesus said. You'll be fine. But it's a psalm of David. And what you find in Psalm 110 is a psalm about God's king, who is David's Lord, who is also a priest. So this king, who is David's Lord, is also a priest. So verse 1. Now this, now this, is, this psalm is, is kind of is crazy, really. It really is crazy. Because it's like, it's, and I, I, I try to figure out a word to describe it. I, I, a direct revelatory psalm. I think some people describe it as an oracular psalm. Um, honestly, I didn't have time to to look into why they say that. So I just put direct revelatory psalm. Why, why am I saying that? Well, because it's clear here that God directly revealed some things that he was doing in glory or would do in glory one day. So just keep in mind, David is the one writing this and he says, he doesn't, even, he doesn't say anything. I mean, there's no heart, there's not even really an introduction. He just immediately goes into what the Lord is saying to the Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So David says, there's Jehovah and then Adonai. And Jehovah says to Adonai, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So David wants us to know that he knows that. And this is what God says to his Lord, David's Lord, that he will sit at my right hand. That's a right hand. That's, that's a place of power, right? That's a place of power. Well, the New Testament writers look back on this passage all the time. And when Jesus dies, rises from the dead, ascends, and is exalted into heaven, where does he go? He goes to God's right hand, doesn't he? So this passage is seen as the pointer and the prophecy in some way of Jesus' exaltation to God's right hand and Jesus Christ's kingship. 
And it's, the, the language is dripping with rule and reign. Verse 2, The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So it's like David hears the, 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 the declaration of Jehovah to Adonai and then looks at Adonai and says, The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. So you have this Lord, who is David's Lord, who is ruling on a throne, who has a volunteer people in this war with him. That's verses 1 through 3. He's king. But now he shifts. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn, still talking to his Lord, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Hmm. According to the order of Melchizedek. You are a priest forever. So So here we have an oath that God takes, God swears and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, again, it is a little challenging here to tease this out. In other words, we don't want to think that David was just kind of holding his hand out there and saying, okay, Lord, you write it. And then the Lord starts moving his hand about the page. We definitely want to say that this is God's revelation to David and that David penned exactly what he wanted him to pen. But it's certainly in some ways, maybe, you know, it's hard to say. David knew more than, he, than we give him credit for, I think. He brings up Melchizedek because God wanted him to. But why does he bring up Melchizedek? Well, on the one hand, he brings it up because God reveals it to David, right? That's, that's pretty clear. But like I say, God rarely bypasses the personal thoughts and logic of the human authors. So perhaps David sees in his own life a similar king-priest mix. You think? Why do I say that? Well, is David from Levi? Is that his tribe? Where's David from? Judah, right. Yet he functions as a priest several times throughout his reign. David reigns from Jerusalem as Melchizedek did. Now that's interesting. They shared the same city. There was a priest in that city before David was king. And now David in some ways, functions as a priest. In 1 Chronicles 15, 25-27, you can see David identified with the priests. Just read some of these. It could be helpful. 1 Chronicles 15, 27. I'm just going to read the verses. Now David was clothed... Well, let me back up. So it was David with the elders of the council and the captains over thousands who went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. So they got the Ark back, and now they're bringing it to the house of Obed, or from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. Because God was helping the Levites, who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. So the Levites were there, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and then they were sacrificing. Verse 27, Now David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, with all the Levites who were carrying the Ark, and the singers... And Shaniah, the leader of the singing, with the singers, David also wore an ephod of linen. So he wanted you to know twice, David's got the linen ephod on. And why is that important? Well, because you, if you know your priesthood history, Exodus 28, Deuteronomy 30-something, I can't remember. The clothing was critical, right? To be set apart as a priest. Several things were critical to being a priest, but clothing was critical. And this linen ephod was those, were those undergarments, those critical undergarments that were sort of holy, maybe in some ways to separate from the, from the tunic God would put on and the skin. I don't, I don't know. 
some of that speculation, but the reality is priests wore the linen ephod, this white, beautiful linen. So this is what David wore, and he's hanging out with the Levites, bringing the ark in together. That's interesting. David's city becomes the home of the ark. Now, you know, where'd the ark belong? In the tabernacle, right? In the Holy of Holies, that's where it belonged. But now, and and who, who ministered there? Well, the only one that could go see the ark once a year was the high priest, right? And the ones that minister in the tabernacle are the priests. And here's the ark in David's town. So that's interesting. David, as a matter of fact, leads the procession. David offers burnt offerings in chapter 16, verse 1. And they brought in the ark of God and placed it inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. Hmm. And in chapter 16, 2, listen, when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Remember Melchizedek? Blesses Abram. David here, blessing the people. Remember the, what's, I can't remember the exact, the technical term for it in number six. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, give you peace. That whole, what is the name of that? can't remember. Well, it's benediction, something. Shema? Shema, Shema is hero of Israel, I think. So, but the reality, this is what priests do. The priests are these representatives of God, these mediators who give blessing. And here's David giving a blessing. Now, there are other priests in the, in the, in the Old Testament that try to be, or the other kings in the, in the Old Testament that try to be priests, and God, you know, he smites them for it. Right? Uzziah, I believe, was one. Ahaz. But regardless, perhaps David's seen in, is, perhaps he sees in his own life a priestly function and role, just like Melchizedek, and it resonates with God's oath to the Messiah, who was the future Davidic son who would sit on David's throne. Remember, God made a promise to David. David, your throne's going to last forever. You're going to have a son on that throne that's going to last forever. And maybe David's thinking, well, you know what? You know, I'm a king, and I function as a priest, like Melchizedek, and my son, who will be the eternal king on my throne, will probably be a king-priest as well. And this enthronement of David's son, God promised in 2 Samuel 7. The other thing we learn from Psalm 110 is that this priesthood after the order of Melchizedek is eternal. So obviously that's going to be a little different than David's priesthood or David's kingship, right? His his small place in time. But we know that the the promise of God to David about his king who will reign on the throne forever is eternal. Well, so also is this priesthood. He says, you are a priest forever. So it will last forever. The fact of this, the eternal aspect of this priesthood already signals, doesn't it, that the Aaronic priesthood will pass away. Right? If you've got a priesthood that's going to last forever, doesn't that signal, it should, that the other priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, has an expiration date on it. It's not going to last forever. And again, writer of Hebrews picks up on that. The New Testament immediately picks up on Jesus as the fulfillment of the priestly king in Psalm 110. Let me read you this passage. Hebrews 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, Psalm 110, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but God made him such. In other words, God brought about his kingship. God brought about his priesthood. God appointed him to these things. He didn't take it upon himself. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying in chapter 5. And he uses Psalm 110 to undergird that. Romans 1.3 says, Concerning his son, Jesus, talking about the gospel, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. So Jesus is David's greater son, who will be a king. Luke one thirty two. Jesus will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So Jesus was born a king, but then yet enthroned as a king after his death, burial, resurrection. Now he sits at God's right hand, ruling the nations with a rod of iron. 
as the son of David, who was also a priest forever. Okay, so that was a lot, wasn't it? Let me try to bring some dots together here. Connection point. So Jesus is the promised son of David, of the kingly line of Judah. He is also the high priest as the fulfillment of the Melchizedekian priesthood. And we all who believe in him are not just members of his kingdom and servants of the king, but we are kings ourselves and priests who serve him. We are a part of his family. Therefore, because he is the royal king priest, we are members of the royal family as well and are royal priests. Okay? So what I want us to see is that who we are is all tied to who he is. Is he a king priest? Well, there's a sense in which we are too. That's the bottom line point. But there's lots of Bible that undergirds that, isn't there? A lot of Bible. So what are we saying when we hear that we're a royal priesthood? I mean, what's so great about that? Why spend so much time to labor and think through this stuff? Well, there's several aspects here at work, right? If you're a king, you're royalty. And there's authority. And there's dignity, isn't there? I encourage you to just, maybe, maybe you want to watch, just for a few clips, just turn on Lord of the Rings at these parts in the movie where you can see the kings just in their, in their honor and pomp and all these things. Just, just, just look at it for a second and just think, in a sense, that's me. In a sense, that's me. What, what do I mean by that? Well, you have a certain dignity about you if you know Jesus Christ. You are royal, right? You are royal. And what you need to do as you're out there engaging the world as royalty is shun all temptations to buckle under shame. Right? We're tempted to be ashamed, aren't we? We're tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. We're, we're tempted to, 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 you know, to cringe back in fear. We're, te- we're tempted. But you can't. You're kings. You're royalty. You're a part of his house. You cannot go there. Royalty doesn't belong in that attic. No shame the world brings on us must cripple our confidence in the dignity we possess and our status as a royal priesthood. And you can think of some pretty horrendous treatments, can't you, that the world has brought upon the saints. I mean, (laughs) a quick reading of the persecution of the church over the last 2,000 years. You'll read some stuff that's horrible. How were they able to keep their heads up? How? Well, they knew who they were. Right? They knew who they were. Royalty. Absolute royalty. We are a part of the royal family, brethren. Don't let any shame weigh you down. But there's authority too, right? As kings, there's authority. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits. This authority wasn't innate in themselves. He gives them authority to cast them out, these demons, and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. We have authority over dark forces in this world because of Jesus. In the strength of the Lord, with His armor, we can stand against the schemes of the devil. We can say with Michael the archangel to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. We can say that. The Lord rebuke you. And the name of Jesus can make darkness flee. That's authority. We can pray and summon the power of our king in war for the souls of men. When Paul is highlighting who we are in Jesus Christ, what does he say? You've been buried with Christ? 
Or you've died with Christ, you've been buried with Christ, you've been raised with Christ. What else? You've been seated with Christ. Where is he sitting? On a throne. Who are you? Well, you're a king. You are royalty. You sit there on that throne with Jesus. Seated with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. What is that all about? It means you reign. You reign. Because Christ reigns over all. Revelation 5.10, as they're singing a song to God and to the Lamb, what's the, what's the refrain here? What's the, what's the praise? There's this praise that says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they reign upon the earth. They reign. They reign upon the earth? Yeah. What does this mean? Well, it means that they have authority on earth to proclaim. It means their efforts will succeed. We reign. We overcome. We win. Even if you die, you win. Your death may may serve God's purpose to bring about a whole host of conversions. Think of Tertullian. Matt was talking about this last week. Why was he compelled to defend the gospel? Because he saw little slave girls dying well for Jesus Christ. She reigns. That's how. Little girl, don't know her name. These little slave girls suffering well, refusing to deny Jesus Christ. Head held high. We are royalty. And if we die, we die like, we, we die like our king. Right? And was he triumphant over death? Yeah. Yeah, he was. And so are we. So are we. What gives us the right to go anywhere and proclaim truth to anybody? Oh, well, we're a part of the royal family. All authority on heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, go. Right? All authority is mine. And when you go, you have that with you. Go. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. You're kings. You're royalty. As kings, we take the offensive in this battle. Think about all those Old Testament kings going out to war and battling with their men. You know, King David failed in his duty because he stayed home when it was time for kings to go to war. So do not think that king means that you sit back on a throne and tell people what to do and let them serve you. No, no, kings go to war. Is that right? Kings go to war. Kings have swords. We have swords. We reign. That's who we are. We're a royal priesthood. We are not afraid, and we will not cower, and we will not be bullied by shame. We, with big smiles on our faces, right? Maybe you're trembling inside, but that's okay. You proclaim this wonderful, glorious truth because your king has all authority. So do you think of yourself like this? This is who you are. This is who I am. And we need to preach this to each other. How quickly are you going to forget this? Right? Four hours? Two hours? We need to be reminding each other of these things all the time. Stirring each other up. Oh man, you need it. I need it. Jeff has talked to me about, and him and Dylan have talked to me about different ways where we want to reach people. We want to go out again into the neighborhood Be praying about these efforts that we as the royal family are going to take to this world and we have authority to do that. We have every right to be on their doorstep because Jesus says so. We have every right. Every right. So be praying about these things. Don't be afraid to have your neighbors over. It's a a fearful thing. 
I mean, it is. I get that. You're going to have them over. You're going to talk to them about the most important truth in all eternity. It's a little intimidating, right? But the reality is God will be with you. And we all experience fear. But just remember who you are. These people are coming to you. You have eternal truth. You're a part of the royal family. You tell them, listen, my king's a great king. You need to know him. And you just, 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 I guess I'm just throwing out just things that we can do as we think about this fact that we are royalty. We have dignity. We have a, we have a word to proclaim. And, um, and authority, too. So anyways, lots of applications there, but just be praying that we'll continue to be reali- realizing what this, what this means for our church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for just remembering that, Lord Jesus, you are a king, you are a priest, and you have made us to be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, to proclaim the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, please as, help us as, as your family, as your children, Lord Jesus, as your brethren, to take on this identity and live for your glory. Lord, it's so easy to preach about. It's glorious to preach about. But Lord, as we move, as, as, we, li- as we leave this place, that you would please encourage us and, and strengthen us to continue to live this way. Think this way. Lord, help us to live like you, following in your footsteps, no matter where it leads. And um, Lord, ultimately, we just want to be useful to you. We just want to be useful. Lord, I pray that you would be with those in this room who think they're Christians but aren't. And those who know they're Christians or know they're not Christians. Lord, that you would just work in their hearts to trust in you, to see you as King of kings and Lord of lords. And that they would bow the knee, turn from their rebellion, and call you Lord and God. And Lord, they will find peace, they will find joy, they will find forgiveness, they will find purpose and meaning. Lord, what a glorious task that we are a part of the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom that will have no end. A kingdom that is unshakable. Lord, just just pray that they would know that. But um, thank you that we can do all things through you. Thank you that ultimately this is not about our own strength. It's about being strong in you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.